You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Rome wasn't built in a day, but Magic 30 in Las Vegas was sold out in hours. Today on the Roundup, Cave Dan mulligans his way through a modern RCQ, Mord goes seal crazy with resurgent belief, and David channels the power of Starfield of Nyx in Pioneer. That's all coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show! Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, coming from the Twin Cities, and I am joined by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Caved In Online, Daniel Schreiber. What is going on, sir? Hey, David. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm hanging in there right now. I've actually got a big move coming up in like a couple of weeks, so I feel like I'm in like the calm before the storm. I'm not as stressed as I should be. I'll put it that way. Didn't you just move out there? You're moving again? Indeed, it's the life of an academic, or in my case, of an academic husband. Um, but yeah, my partner's got a new position, so we're packing up and moving on out. All right, well, that's exciting. All your uh, cards are neatly organized by like first color, then type, then rarity, or what's the... I mean... <laughs> the playables are just in like a box somewhere, and everything else is in a bag. I commandeered one of the closets. I imagine this is a common scenario for, for magic fans out there. <laughs> one of the closets, I have like a bunch of boxes, very neatly labeled. I'm proud of them. You know, they're labeled by color, by format, even by type sometimes. And then next to that, next to all like the shelf full of boxes is like the heap of extra shoe boxes, <laughs> like bulk and extra stuff that isn't quite organized yet. <laughs> but um, I just kept that out of sight. So there's a reckoning that's going to happen in the next two weeks or so. <laughs> yeah, uh, first you have to determine if each card brings you joy, right? And then if it doesn't, you put it to one side. I think it's <laughs> lighted on fire <laughs> for every draft common. Well, yeah, big things are uh, happening in the Magic world. It is the 30th anniversary of Magic the Gathering this year. We are a week away from the spoilers for Dominaria United. So as Dan moves, we will also be finding out about the latest moves in the uh, land of Wizards of the Coast. Very nice. Smooth. (laughs) So yeah, uh, today we'll be talking about uh, Dan's RCQ report. We will uh, visit our uh, Project Resurgence update. We have some early returns. They are, you know, we'll say somewhat promising. But before we get into any of that, we need to do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Just a reminder, if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support us, the best way to do so is to go to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Join at whatever level you feel comfortable with. You get access to the Discord. You get to support the show. You get to meet a bunch of like-minded brewers and, you know, hang out. And our newest patrons, we have to give a big shout out to. They are Roy R... You're going to have to help me with the pronunciation here, Dan. 
M Y X A is it Mix Amy Toysis? <laughs> Tosis? I was hoping you knew. Mix Amatosis? Mix Amitosis, that's what I think it is. But I started to type that name in and the spell check like just changed two letters and was like, Did you mean Mixamitosis? I'm like, did I mean that? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, welcome to them, whoever they are. Thank you very much. And then to Rick W. Uh we appreciate everybody. And then we also Want to uh, give a big shout out to Briger, also an elk, who increased their pledge. So thank you guys very much. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. We, we cannot do what we do without the support of people like you guys. Yeah, absolutely. A big thank you to all of our patrons. Joining the Patreon at any tier gets you access to our Discord channel. We've got a wonderful community there. And if you're interested in little perks, little merch, playmats, tokens, that sort of thing, you can find all of that at the Patreon as well. All right, so the big announcement today was the Magic 30th event in Las Vegas. They've been teasing this for a while, right? They said, mark your calendars. I put myself on the email list so that I would be the first to know whenever the details came out. And that turned out to be today. So we're finally getting to see like what the big party is going to be coming up October 28th through 30th. Yeah, so Halloween weekend, if you want to dress like your favorite Magic character, <laughs> I'm sure there will be a lot of people joining you. <laughs> so in addition to the Magic Fest experience with side events, tournaments, that sort of thing, there'll be panels, cosplay contests, etc. They're even having like two parties. One is general admission, one is like VIP only. You have to get invited somehow. I feel like this should be pretty awesome. It's hard to sort of parse through like what's marketing hype and what's real, but my understanding is that whenever there's any kind of event in Vegas, whether that's a Grand Prix or then a Magic Fest, those are the biggest draw, right? Everyone descends on the city there for sin and revelry and who knows what else. To have that be the epicenter for what is, you know, a pretty cool event, the 30th anniversary, I think is going to be a, a big show. Yeah, Las Vegas, very pleasant uh, at that time of year. And hopefully it's enough outside of the like sweet spot when a lot of people go there. The hotels and stuff won't be crazy expensive. I mean, that's the hope. This episode is coming out on Friday, August 12th, I believe. They've been saying that the information will be coming out for a while. They're a few weeks behind on that, so I'm not quite sure why. But I feel like everything's going to happen in a very compressed timeline now. I think the most pertinent thing is that tickets are already on sale. Like tickets go on sale yesterday, that is to say Thursday, August 11th. And some of these events, just looking at them, I think they're going to sell out or possibly already will have been sold out by the time you're hearing this podcast, which is a little alarming to me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the appeal though, right? Is you have all a bunch of different events. All of them are attractive because of uh, what do you want to call it? Like false restriction, <laughs> limited the size of the event. So the, Event EV is very high. The expected value from the event is quite high, um, but only so many people can take place. And they are very unique events, right? It seems to be. I mean, some more so than others. Like some are just like, okay, we, we have some old Amonkhet product. So there's an Amonkhet seal deck or something. <laughs> um, those, those are a little, a little bit less exciting, but they do have plenty of stuff like that if you just like older packs. I think the the big event that is relevant for listeners to our show is what they're calling the Magic 30 Championship. Modern format, pretty expensive, and it feeds into a beta draft 
I don't know when the last time they did a beta draft was, but these are so cool, right? Like we're talking about booster packs of limited edition beta. You can actually crack those open, draft with them, keep what you draft. You know, maybe you'll, I think last time they opened like a tropical island or something and then underground sea. Who knows what's going to be open this time? It could even be a boat. (laughs) Could even be a boat. (laughs) So for the flagship event, if I can call it that, to be featuring modern... That is both a very exciting and like you know it gives the competitive players some hope that like yes there there's something for you if you come to Vegas besides just you know corset through the ages sealed deck event for prize tickets which they also have but there I mean if you're hearing this and you're like oh yeah I was that kind of interested in that beta draft I urge you to just stop what you're doing check the website immediately and see what the situation is on tickets I suspect they're going to sell out within a day. Like I was looking through the details and there are really not that many slots set aside for this beta draft thing. There's four qualifier tournaments that run throughout the weekend. Each qualifier tournament is capped at 224 players. So if you add that all up, that means that only 896 slots are available to even attempt to qualify for the beta draft. Think about modern Grand Prix back in the heyday of the Magic Fest circuit. You know, you would routinely clear a thousand players for modern events. You know, some of them had like two or 3,000 players. So now you're talking about, you know, the flagship once-in-a-lifetime beta draft event only available to 896 players. And that's assuming that each player can only register once. If I'm reading this correctly, you can actually register for all three of the qualifiers. Um, Two are simultaneous, but in theory, you could register for three at once. And then we're talking about less than 500 players get a chance to even compete for this. I want to see the math. Like, obviously, these print runs are done. So how many boosters of Antiquities and Arabian Nights are left on planet Earth or beta, right? Like, eventually, there won't be any left. That's a haunting thought. Yeah, I remember um, it must have been the first round of beta drafts from the 25th anniversary. Someone had, like, won the draft and the prize was an alpha starter deck. And the question was, what are you going to do with that starter deck? You're going to crack it, you're going to sell it, you're going to keep it in your vault forever. And the person who won it said, well, they're definitely not going to crack it because they feel like every time a pack like this is open, there's just a little bit less magic left in the world. That was five years ago. (laughs) Who knows (laughs) where we're going to be at five years from now. The thing about it is like these things are are like new cars, right? They lose 10% of their value as soon as you like drive them off the lot. Like the whole appeal of a Legends booster being valuable is that it may contain the like 12 cards that are good from legends, but it, you know, most likely does not. Uh, and the, whatever the, the very narrow number of cards in Arabian nights and even fewer cards in beta. So it's like, yeah, just like lingering, you know, the, the giant, you know, in the hill is, uh, is very scary and ominous and, uh, and majestic. But when he's like stumbling through town, you know, like tripping over, uh, your house, it's a little less scary. So yeah, I, I like the idea of just like hanging on to, these things like preserving the illusion of what magic was, which it's really moved far away from and for better or for worse um, in, in many ways. So. Hmm. So when you look at this beta draft, the total prizes given out are actually mostly in the form of sealed product. In addition to the 24 beta boosters being opened for the draft itself, they're giving away looks like one extra beta booster sealed, three Arabian nights boosters, four antiquities, uh, 50, 52 legends actually because they found all those extra legends boosters recently and then a bunch of italian legends 128 italian legends boosters 
So it's actually not that many packs, but then you look at like what is the actual going rate for these packs, and it's like, okay, this the things I just listed add up to north of $150,000 easily on the secondary market. Yeah. I mean, I think the EV here is awesome. Like if you can get in and do well, even if it, even just the novelty of it is worth it, but they are definitely compensating you. They, they could certainly have made this significantly less attractive from a, a monetary value. And, and they've chosen not to, to their credit, uh, probably because limiting that, uh, Limiting the entry, I mean, it creates this, you know, scarcity that makes it su- it's going to be a super high profile to do. I hope that's a good decision. I, don't know, I feel like in two days, like when the first person tries to sign up, well, it's actually a two-step process. Let me back up a second. So you buy your badge for the weekend and it's pretty expensive. So like a lot of the commander crowd is aghast at how expensive they're, they're pricing, even just the entry to the event hall. You got to buy your badge first just to get in the door. And then after you've bought that badge, you're then allowed to immediately go back into your purchase and like add on tournaments that you want to sign up for in advance. So you could buy the badge, book your tickets, whatever, and then like excitedly go back and sign up for the modern events and realize that they all sold out yesterday. That's a potential drawback to the way they have set this up. Limiting this to just, what would I say, less than 900 players who can even attempt to qualify a risky choice, I think. Like, why not at least let more people sign up? You don't have to change the EV or anything, you know, tweak the numbers to make it make sense for you. But, you know, just rent an additional hall so you have a little more space. It's really strange to me that they would make the space limited in the flagship event. I mean, I think the main lesson from the last couple of years is that they've realized that these events do very little to actually like drive magic or at least the magic as they consider it to be most profitable. So they have taken that lesson and like pushed it to its ultimate extreme. I suspect an event like this won't even exist in the uh, 40th anniversary. Hmm. Okay. So you're saying that like this, this event is not actually the flagship event. It'll just be like a blip on the radar. I mean, it used to be these flagship events wanted to show like magic was a to-do, right? And and in theory, the, there was some kind of, you know, maybe nebulous, maybe hard to define on a, on a finance spreadsheet output of this is a cool event. People went here and had a blast and then they post positively about it on social media or they write articles about it on starcitygames.com and channelfireball.com and then people build decks or get excited about all that. And that is not the marketing plan of Wizards anymore, right? The the Pro Tour is a significantly smaller thing. There is no Hall of Fame. Uh, there is no Star City Games really uh, writing about events. Channel Fireball was purchased by TCG Player. So I think right now, like, Arena just makes so much money. All the nominal benefits you're getting from these kind of events is is just a rounding error to them and so they do it right it's it's it is still free promotion but um all these modern business guys are obsessed with scarcity you know it's like all these idiots buying space in the metaverse and they were stunned that uh, the prices went down it's like <laughs> online space is false scarcity no one gives a shit uh, but this is real scarcity there's only so many spots people do want to play it people will pay a very high premium um and I have to say, to to defend Wizards, no matter what they do, Twitter is just full of like miserable people bitching about it. So if they made it 1,500 spots, the you know 1,501st person would write a long treatise about how Wizards let them down. So 
I don't know that they like there's enough motivated reasoning for them to try to be more whatever inclusive or player friendly or, or however you want to parse it for this particular type of event. Possibly so. Yeah, trying to win over the social media response is, is a lost cause. <laughs> but if you want to see my Twitter thread rant, it's on our it's on our Twitter page. <laughs> there you go. I am player eight hundred ninety seven, <laughs> and I'm cannot believe it. <laughs> I've had enough of this nonsense. Never been so betrayed. But yes, uh, so the takeaway, at least for our listening audience here, is if you were at least pondering, like, oh yeah, Vegas, modern, I should look into that. Go look into it now. Better safe than sorry. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, people will balk at the price and it will not sell out, but I suspect it's going to be sold out very quickly. And you can always, if you don't want to play, you don't get in the tournament, you just take your $500 and put it on black. (laughs) You're in Vegas, man. Turn that into a cool thousand and, uh, you know, have a good rest of the weekend. (laughs) Lady Luck. She will. (laughs) Bring her as your plus one. She She will be kind to you. If you believe in the heart of the cards, you can bet on black. So other MTG news. David, you mentioned that Dominaire United previews are beginning officially a week from today. We have the first part of the story arc. I read through it. It was alarming enough. You know, Karn is on Dominaria and the Phyrexians are there. Not a huge surprise. Does this do anything for you? I mean, does does Dominaria resonate with you at all as... As a magic dinosaur. I mean, it doesn't resonate with me, but I didn't like read the novels or anything. You know, Damon unironically really recommends the uh, original magic books that are all set on Dominaria, Uh, you know, set into like the kingdom of Benalia or whatever. And I I don't even know who the main characters are because it predates Planeswalkers. Yeah. So I think for people like that, it's it's cool to return, right? People are really excited every time we come back to uh, Ravnica People are really have become very excited every time we come back to uh, Innistrad. So, you know, the the world of magic doesn't mean very much to me. The like narrative parts of magic, I think, are like incredibly weak compared to. We can go through the the archive of all fantasy, um, but it means something to somebody. And uh, you know, I'm not here to yuck anybody else's yum. People get really excited about this stuff, and yeah, it's it's a it's a cool thing for them to do. And I think. Sometimes the world building probably helps um, create new ideas for cards and mechanics and things like that as they, as they kind of have to go through the mental exercise of, okay, character X can do Y and Z, right? In this novel, how do we represent that uh, in the game? And I think that sparks ideas. Obviously, not all mechanics make it in a finished form that we like, but it at least pushes, I think, the designers into to new directions. Yeah, it was so striking that, was it two sets ago, they had... Tamiyo the Completed Sage, and they came up with an entirely new keyword just to tease this Phyrexian story arc. I don't know how many Planeswalkers they're actually going to do to have them get completed. I feel like it's the kind of trick you only use once, and like the second Planeswalker to get completed will not be that interesting, but I suppose they have to like at least print a couple. Well, and then, you know, I think Tamiyo is a great example. People were freaking out, and which Planeswalker do you want to see completed or not, but from a game perspective, from a brewer's perspective, from our podcast perspective, we have never discussed Tamiyo again. It's just not a playable card in Pioneer. So it's cool that there's something for those people who are really invested in the story and which Planeswalker do you want to be Liliana? It's going to be completed. I don't really even know what that means, uh, but I know that the card as printed is not playable. So I don't spend a lot of mental energy on it. So it's awesome that magic can be like 
both things to both groups of people. You know, I, I thought that, but I was actually paired against a Tamiyo deck like a couple of weeks ago, and it, it looked pretty decent. They they used Tamiyo Completed Sage to buy back the other Tamiyo from the graveyard, <laughs> and they were doing some kind of turbo fog taking turns thing. It was interesting. I had like never actually considered whether Tamiyo Completed Sage actually like does something useful, but you know, it's a guaranteed reanimation of something in your graveyard. All right. What format was this? Modern? I believe it was Pioneer, but I have to go back and check my notes. Okay. It was a very unexpected deck to get paired sure. against. Well, if it has Tamiyo completed and it's a very unexpected deck, I think that's correct. <laughs> All right. So, so much for MTG news. You want to shift gears a little bit? Yes. I would love to switch gears. <laughs> so we're in RCQ season, Regional Championship Qualifiers. For North American listeners, this means you have a chance to win your local RCQ at your LGS or somewhere else. First place gets you a foil Nykthos Shrine to Nyx and an invite to DreamHack Atlanta, where at least the North American RCQ is essentially like a mini pro tour. Doing well at your regional championship, in our case, DreamHack Atlanta, qualifies you for the actual pro tour, which is international. So I figured, you know, I should at least try these events out, right? This is kind of the much ballyhooed return of competitive play at the local level, right? This is somewhat reminiscent of the PPTQ, RPTQ system, but perhaps a little more friendly. Uh, yeah, I mean, the question on my mind was, is this going to feel like the return of competitive magic or is it going to be a flop? I'm happy to say that at least at the event that I went to, which was at Atomic Empire in Durham, it felt good, right? There were 69 players showed up, seven rounds, cut to top eight. You know, it reminded me a little bit of at the height of the Star City Games Invitational Circuit. You know, local stores in the Northeast would often run these Invitational Qualifiers, IQs, that were advertised as like 1K prize payout. This felt like that. Chill, but it felt like meaningful stakes. So you won, if we can remember the fond times. It was a PTQ with blue-red drakes for Pioneer. And it was a similar it was a similar size group of players. I guess what I'm asking you to do is compare this RCQ to that, which you described as again, you use the word chill, I think, to describe that as very low key. So it's a very pleasant experience at the time you described your opponents as not particularly playing high level competitive uh magic. Uh and you just rolled over them. So uh would you would you say that not this- to besmirch all my opponents, you know. No, of course not. But you, you said you said, you know, the average league felt like maybe you were playing, you know, high quality grinders, playing, you know, tier one decks, and you didn't always feel like you were doing that when you won your PTQ. So True. That felt like unique circumstances. Like that was almost a forgotten event. It was the first Star City Games invitational post COVID. So they they kind of like owed people an invitational tournament. And whenever they run SCG Con, they have side events. It just so happened that the Pioneer PTQ at that event like coincided with day one of the main event of the Star City Games Invitational. So it was a very small field, very chill, like only 54 players, I think. You know, people who either forgot about the main event or hadn't qualified or just hadn't bothered. So that was, I think, an outlier. I'd never been to an event as chill as that one. This felt more like, okay, all the local players marked their calendars. It's like the who's who of, you know, the people came from as far as exit 12 to this event. (laughs) Everyone is here. But yeah, you know, this is one of the known stores. It wasn't like too cutthroat or anything. Like I I didn't look around and see, oh, there's a bunch of stone cold killers here. There were some faces I recognized. I think 
Chris Castorepel from the Grindcast was there, Dylan Donegan, some of the SCG guys. But I didn't recognize the players who ended up like taking the tournament down. So what was your uh, weapon of choice for this tournament? Gotta be Celtic Crabvine. This was modern, and I currently cannot afford any other modern deck, so <laughs> definitely gotta be Celtic Crabvine. But I, I talked about how, you know, I just love Otherworldly Gaze, and this is my go-to deck now for when it's money time, when it's time to start winning. Gotta break out the crabs. We had Anthony Menino on last week, and, you know, he's my Crabvine sensei, my guru. So I was kind of trying to get some tech from him. He suggested playing Brazen Borrowers on the sideboard as kind of a catch-all card that's like decent against Leyline, buys you just enough time against Graveyard Hate. It was an interesting theory. So I basically took the same main deck I've been playing forever, added a couple of Brazen Borrowers to the sideboard, and I decided to try a Spell Pierce because I hadn't been facing that many decks where Force of Negation was actually very good. But beyond that, I mean, it was pretty much you know the same list that I've been talking about for almost you know half a year now. Apart from the build itself, the thing that I was interested in was, you know, like like sometimes when I'm playing Crabvine, we know it's a high variance deck. High variance in the sense that all you can do is set yourself up to have good mills and a good chance of returning Vengevines. You know, make sure you, you keep two creatures in hand for the crucial turn, mulligan for the right tools, and then just hope the top of your deck is kind to you. When you're mulliganing a lot and when there's variance involved in what you mill, like there's definitely going to be streaks where you're, you feel like you're running cold or running hot. You know, a lot of players just refuse to play decks like this because it feels like it's totally out of your control. It's like the opposite of a cantrip-heavy Merktide deck or something. So I wanted to like actually take notes just in case I got tilted. I wanted to make sure that I actually had some data. Like, what is going on with my mulligans? What is going on with my mills? And like, am I making bad choices, or am I, am I just getting unlucky, or am I getting very lucky? It was an interesting exercise to do that in paper, in person. Yeah, so, I mean, you've got a lot of data here, Dan. You've got uh, a list of all your mulligans, your average hand keep size, your record at each uh, hand keep size. Yeah, I'm going to put the full report on faithlessbrewing.com. I think it should be out by the time this episode is live. So if you want the blow-by-blow, round-by-rounds, you can read about it there. Spoiler, I didn't do great. I went four and three in games. I went eight and eight. But the more interesting part for me was like, okay, what did I actually learn from running the experiment, if we put it that way? I've been saying when I talk about Crabvine that you are often starting with five cards. Like that's a pretty normal starting hand because 20 cards in your deck just do nothing when you draw them. You actually prefer to have those cards in the deck. At the same time, you're looking for a hand that has two lands and two mill pieces. You know, preferably Otherworldly Gaze and Hedron Crab. But in a pinch, you can combine one of those two with a plus Citrus Supplier and Merfolk Secret Keeper. So like those are the elements you need. Two lands, two mill pieces. You have three cards in your hand that you don't need and that you actually would often just prefer to put those extra cards back in the deck. So it's not necessarily a problem to mulligan to five or even four. I played the deck enough to just sort of accept this as true, but I wanted to like check the numbers and see if the data bore that out. And what I found was that, yeah, I, I did just fine on mulligans to four. I think I went three and one in games that I mulliganed to four. Correction. I think I went two and one in games that I mulliganed to four, three and one in games that I mulliganed to five. So people don't like companions because they get eight cards in their hand. But you're like, I'm going to zag. <laughs> Seven cards in your hand is actually not even something I'm interested in. <laughs> exactly. Do I get a special companion for starting with five cards in my hand? Exactly. 
companion, return to seven cards in hand if you are playing a deck that mulligans a bunch. I just want like a Hogak companion. I'll start on three cards if I can have a Hogak companion. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I did mulligan to three once in this event. That was a little bit unfortunate. But yeah, the funny thing is like in paper, face to face across from a person, you know, people are trying to be nice and friendly. And once they see you just like go for your third mulligan in a row, their whole attitude changes. They get like very apologetic, like, oh man, that's tough for you. Bad beats, like, oof, man, another mulligan. And I'm just like, yeah, I didn't say anything. Like I I said nothing. I'm just quickly trying to shuffle because, you know, it takes forever to mulligan. I'm like, I'm fully intend to win this game <laughs> on, on four cards, which I then do. And then depending on how much they said, they were like either very embarrassed or they're very like, oh, I can't believe you beat me. And I'm like, oh, all right, it's just a dredge deck. Graveyard decks will get you on four. I don't know if this is advice, but just a caution that when you're playing in paper, you know, don't make any assumptions about the opponent's deck, at least in game one. In game one on a typical mole to five or four, in the dark, I would expect to be playing Tron. That's the deck that I feel like mulligans the most to hands that low. Obviously, Tron's just trying to assemble Tron. They they can do it with <laughs> three very specific pieces. Um, so I would never be comforting a Tron player as they're mulliganing down. I'm just like, oh, exactly. this f- filthy rat. I'm so glad that hopefully justice <laughs> is being done here. But then it turns out you're kind of playing a hero deck, so then I would then I would actually feel bad. <laughs> Yeah, multiple players mentioned Tron. They're like, oh, I, I know what you're on. You're mulliganing yep. so aggressively. Yep. And I think one player even cost themselves badly because they turned out to be on Crashing Footfalls, a build that played Gemstone Caverns. And so they, they had mulliganed once, I think. And they immediately, once we were finished mulliganing, they played Gemstone Caverns and imprinted Dead and Gone onto it. Mm-hmm. Which is actually a great card against me. That Against you, yes. Picks off my crab and really shuts me down. But they just assumed that I was on Tron, so they like put you know put the dead and gone away, and I think that cost them huge because I just 2 0 the match on a mulligan to four in that game. Yeah, beautiful. So yeah, if anyone wants to uh, read a treatise on Salte Crabvine in the modern metagame, Dan has, has it all. I mean, there, there is so much information here. I... I played in your absence in a mana traders event and was totally bewildered uh by the deck you gave me some like simple (laughs) if l statements basically to follow Mm. uh i was frustrated in the way that you were describing earlier (laughs) and that i felt like i had very little agency uh and i felt like the opponents i that that i lost you know they just had graveyard hate on like turn two and three sometimes in game one just like man but then, yeah, when, they, when the deck does its thing, it just feels so sweet. You just <laughs> roll these people. It's like, how can this be? Yeah, you found yourself somehow paired against a red-green Titan Shift deck that was splashing for four main deck copies of Hidetsugu Consumes All. Yeah. But A, that's a nuts build, but also like, <laughs> yeah. what the heck? <laughs> yeah, so it kills the crab when it comes into play. <laughs> and then the next turn, it sweeps your graveyards. It's like... This dude knew we were coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that Luris is gone, nobody uh, nobody's playing that card anymore. <laughs> so if Crabvine interests you, or if like Mulligan Theory, that sort of thing, is of interest to you, I think there's lessons to learn from Crabvine, and I do recommend you know checking out this tournament report. Um, I'll put a link to it in the episode description of this episode here. As far as like RCQs themselves, overall very positive impression for me at least, at least the one that I went to. The metagame was like pretty narrow. Like I saw a lot of tier one decks, you know, awful lot of hammer, 
lot of four color, a lot of Merktide, and I guess Amulet is popular in my area. So it was like the known decks. I didn't see that many brews, but I do want to give a special shout out to one of my opponents who was playing what looked to be a hammer deck, but then they also had Quest for the Holy Relic as like a secondary plan. <laughs> do you remember this one, David? Oh, yeah. this it, it was kind of a sweet standard deck in the age of like um, Callblade. This was like the all-in combo deck. So it's a white mana enchantment, and the original Zendikar had a bunch of enchantments like this that were quests, and you had to complete whatever the task was. People, of course, remember Pyromancer's Ascension, right? Because that was briefly a, a tool used in Storm. When that gets its third counter, uh, then every time you cast a spell, uh, uh, an instant or sorcery is copied. This was, I believe, every time you cast a creature spell, you put a counter on it. And when it gets its fifth counter, you get to sacrifice it, search your library for an equipment card, put it into play, and attach it to a creature. So at the time the equipment it was searching for, uh, this is how long ago this was, was there's a six mana equipment in Zendikar uh, that when a, the creature, it gives plus six, plus six, and when that creature attacks, you get to Desert Twister, you get to Vindicate a permanent. Yeah, Argentum Armor. <laughs> Argentum Armor, yeah. So, you know, there's there's no uh, the MH1 uh, or 2 uh, equipment and, the, and Batterskull had not been printed yet. So you'd play like... Memnite was free. There was a one white uh, two two bird um, in the uh, the Mirrodin that came right after that. That bounced an artifact back to your hand. So like Memnite plus that on turn two is three creatures already. So you had these ways to like turbo out. <laughs> yeah, the Glinthawk <laughs> yeah, after Memnite. Yeah, exactly. And then you, and then you're like putting Argentum armor on your Glinthawk. You're attacking for eight. You're blowing up there. You know whatever. Stoneforge Mystic. It was a thing. You sometimes could like, you saw people try it when Modern was new. I saw a bunch of people trying that deck combined with Vengevine because you have oh. all these triggers that could, but it just, there were too many moving parts, but. Yeah. The player that I encountered who was running this deck, I think they had like a middling record two and two or something at the time, but they immediately kept seven and then didn't play any lands. <laughs> I was like baffled by this, right? So I'm just like, all right, just doing my thing. Here's my Venge Vines. Here's my Prize Amalgams. Go to game two or whatever. But I had to ask, like, what, what happened that game? You kept seven and did nothing? And he's like, well, I had the turn one Argentum armor. He like showed me the hand. It was all these zero drops and a quest, but he didn't have the planes. Oh. You got to shoot your shot sometimes, I guess. Could you have beaten it? I mean, <laughs> is it possible he could have done this thing and lost? I could not have beaten it. Um, I, I think that, you know, the reason why this plan is a little flawed is like solitude is a thing now. So, even, yeah. you know, Argentum Armor Pass is not going to work. Emrakul Pass is not going to work. Yeah. Uh, but it's cool to do it every once in a while. So Argentum Armor is a full on Vindicate. It can destroy lands. I, I just couldn't remember that part. It can. Yeah. Okay. Plus six, plus six, and it destroys anything. Yeah. What a card. Yeah. All right, so enough about modern RCQs. I think the last order of business for today's episode is we want to follow up for the next installment of our current monthly project, which is all about the card Resurgent Belief. Emmy and I talked about this last Monday, and we didn't get through everything, right? We talked about like some of the best enchantments in different categories. We talked about ways to put the deck together in modern and some ideas from our Discord. But there's much more, right? We're just scratching the surface. So we have a little bit of results now. 
Uh, more got to play a league. And David, while you were not able to record with us last time, you did some thinking about this as well. Thinking at least in Pioneer, where resurgent belief is not actually illegal, but you know maybe there's an equivalent concept, something that is spiritually the same deck that we could think about there. Yeah, so one of the things I like about Mord's build is, you know, I think the obvious thing is when you have these suspend cards, we kind of have a known shell, and the known shell is cascading into these effects. We mm-hmm. have three different cascade decks that are commonly played in modern, right? We have Rhinos, we have Living End, and then we have the um, the red, red sorcery that, like, you know, exiles all your permanents, and I don't know what that's called. Escape from Eternity or some glimpse of tomorrow glimpse of tomorrow so you know we kind of know what that can do right and so you'd have to say all right is resurgent belief actually better than living end right they function in very similar ways they'd be they'd be turned on the same way they both use the graveyard unless you have a specific enchantment package probably not so i like that he understood that you don't want to just build a worse version of existing deck that's not much of a brew per se right it might function but if you're just doing a worse thing than living end what are you gaining so instead, he took advantage of the card Bring to Light, right? And then he built, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, but it's got 80 cards in the main deck. Um, <laughs> How does he keep getting away with it? But, but you get the added benefit of Bring to Light being your tutor package. So normally, I feel like these are kind of like cheat brews because you see like, oh, I'm brewing around whatever. It's like, all right, well, I saw the three drop that I'm brewing around like twice in the league. <laughs> You're going to see a Bring to Light or a Resurgent Belief. Uh, Resurgent Belief only is Suspend 2. So you can just suspend it on turn 2. You know, it's not a huge tempo loss. And then you can proceed to dump a bunch of enchantments possibly in your graveyard. And then, you know, Mord is just an expert at building these, like, four-color, you know, value uh, (laughs) chains. You know, there's an Omnath in here. There's uh, Teferi. um, And then he added a bunch of, uh, you know, cool techie cards. He's been a huge believer in Spreading Seas. So... You know, he only went 3-2, but uh, I think he really enjoyed playing the deck. And I feel like there's also a lot of stuff that can still be, uh, you know, tweaked here. You point out there's a few more bad cards in this <laughs> 95 than we'd normally like to see. I think so. The Bring to Light tech is important, right? That's the first step, as exactly as you're saying, David. I kind of forget that Bring to Light could even get these no mana cost suspend cards. But once you've staked your claim and said, okay... Paying five for Resurgent Belief is worth it. Suspending it for two and waiting is worth it. These are plausible things you can do, but like, what am I actually getting back from Resurgent Belief that's going to win the game, that's going to justify all these slots? you got to find some enchantments, and Mord is here looking at the Seals package. Seal of Fire, four copies. Seal of Removal, three copies. Colossal Sky Turtle, four copies of Sky Turtle. Here, we're actually intending to use it as a bounce spell. Which is card disadvantage, right? You really have to get paid off with the bring to light belief thing for this to even be thinkable. He didn't stop there. He even put in three copies of Weaver of Harmony. Copies the ability of an enchantment source, so you can copy the effect when you sacrifice a seal. You can copy the channel ability of the Sky Turtle. You can copy a Saga Trigger. And he even put in four copies of Spirited Companion. That's the 1-1 Elvish Visionary that's also an enchantment. Are these modern power level cards? Um, they're specialists. I would never dream of putting so many into the same deck, except that we're doing this enchantment project. So I'm encouraged that like he was able to battle for a 3-2, and you know he posted a few screenshots of 
you know, him getting tremendous value, all four seal of fires coming back against Murktide or something. But I mean, are these cards actually going to be worth a card in the typical game of modern? I'm not totally clear on that. Yeah, I guess to me, the cards that raise the eyebrow the most is actually Spirited Companion. I'd like to see him try to cheat some actually like super powerful enchantments into the graveyard. Uh, you know, you're already playing Fable, so you can kind of do a little bit of the loot thing. You could play the uh, two and a blue instant, you know, draw three, discard an enchantment. Um, you could even do that, the upkeep, that Resurgent Belief is coming off suspend. Um, whether there are enchantments worth doing that for, I'd, I'd hear that argument. But yeah, especially Spirited Companion, like it's a card that Mord would love, two mana, one, one, draw a card. Uh, can be blinked <laughs> by uh, your Urion. Um but I mean, that, that card just isn't even close, right? And even if you get it back, I mean, you might draw more Spirited Companions. The problem with putting cards like that in the deck is you just draw a bunch of them. They draw you two more of them, and uh, then what? Exactly. It's it's not a nice Vanquadle. No. <laughs> it is not a nice Vanquadle. So I was thinking if I free up those slots, if I maybe also cut the Weaver of Harmony, do I just want to put Dryda the Elysian Grove and some Valakuts in the deck? I mean, maybe that's going to get me closer to the no bad cards configuration and it's important to remember that dryad is an enchantment so it is a card that often gets killed right in in post-board games and so resurgent belief actually brings it back and turns on your valakets and you're playing late into the game i i think that's just a very natural in a deck with four run and six you just build in a very natural utility that that's very strong and you're already playing playing bring delights so you can just play one um whatever sack all your lands Two green green sorcery scape shift yeah scape shift yeah so you like exactly what you're describing like just having some kind of unfair way to win after you accrue all this value makes me feel better than just accruing a bunch of value and just like dying as we always joke about with a full hand and a big smile on your face yeah urza saga is another possibility you know that takes up four land slots plus some main deck slots for one man artifacts but yeah that's an enchantment you could get back to i think there's room to like power the sec up i'm not going to say improve it necessarily but definitely make it a little more powerful yeah i don't think we're going to miss the spirit of companions or the weaver of harmony <laughs> i will never miss weaver of harmony i, I mean the card's not playable in pioneer that's that's a red flag to me <laughs> yeah I, I do also wonder if like we should be playing more hard removal if i can use that expression like on thin ice chain to the rocks that sort of thing Currently, we're relying just totally on seals, maybe as proof of concept. There is also the cute tricks you can do with abundant growth, which Mord is an expert in. He, he loves putting abundant growth onto a fetch land, and then at the right moment, cracking that fetch land to turn on delirium for traverse or whatever. You could do the same thing here, right? Put it on a fetch land, and then when, when the time is right, crack that fetch land, Resurgent Belief comes off suspend, or gets cast with Bring to Light, and you get another trigger off your abundant growth. There's something going on here, right? It's not just a completely random pile of enchantments. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of room to tweak, tune. Maybe Tameshi is a card you want to try, right? That just like rebuys seals for value. Yeah, I mean, there, you could even play like Enchantress effects. Yeah. That may be just worse than Omnath, but you know, as a one-of, it's not necessarily like a worse than Showdown of the Scalds. Love me some Eidolon of Blossoms. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's a promising start, at least, in Modern. David, I want to ask you, so you've worked on this card conceptually 
in modern in the past, right? I don't think we ever tested these decks, but you know, you you had drawn up a basic cascade list with lay claims, shark typhoons, cast outs, etc. I think we also did a week on Curse of Silence, the ill-fated card, and you you proposed something similar there. Yes. So if you had to choose, right, between either the cascade into it path or the draw it and draw an Asphatol path, like which which one do you feel like is more powerful? Um, normally I would say the cascade path because it's a proven shell. I think though, because it's a proven shell, you're going to get hit by people who are playing hate. But of course, it's not hate that they're prepared for your. No one's putting cards in their sideboard to stop resurgent belief. But they're, you know, Teferis and everything else, they, they do actually beat you accidentally, right? Their uh, hearses and, and whatnot. So I think the um, the trying to attack from a slightly different angle, like Mord's doing, right? He's playing Bring to Light. Um, or, or to play, you know, a different way to cast it for free. As for Toll being, you know, a possibility. that That is of interest to me. I don't know that... Either of them really like adds up to do, be doing enough, but um, it is interesting that As Foretold is also an enchantment. In our Discord, the Greenspeed had posted an interesting list where they use Bloodbraid Marauder as their Cascade spell of choice, which caught my eye because that's kind of the forgotten Cascade spell. But I think that the thought process was, okay, we need to put enchantments into our graveyard anyway, so we're pretty close to Delirium. That's an odd type to put in the graveyard. And secondarily, a lot of the cards you might want to use to loot stuff away, like Faithful Mending, like Tainted Indulgence, are not compatible with Charlotte's Agent or Violent Outburst or whatever. So maybe you can like meet in the middle and play the, the forgotten two-mana Cascade spell, and then you can still play your Faithful Mendings. You can even play Counterspell if you want that while you're filling your graveyard. I thought that was an interesting idea. Yeah. Of course, you're all in on the graveyard then, right? Um, the uh, Marauder is even more graveyard dependent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. we're just going to pretend that the graveyard is fine right. for the purposes <laughs> of this project. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things. When you're trying to brew around a card and one of the ways to attack it is a way that um, people are already prepared for, you know, this is one of the reasons why like in pioneer, I've not been proposing like reanimator shells because people are like main decking hearse now because uh, Phoenix is so good. So the way you attack the metagame is to not propose maybe a slightly worse proactive plan that is also hurt by all the same cyborg cards, which is why I love the sort of twist that more took, which is, all right, you have all this hate for, Cascade effects, that's not that good against me because I'm just playing kind of a normal value plan. Maybe we would quibble with some of the specific card choices, but I think that's how you have to think about brewing with cards. You don't want to brew just a slightly worse version of existing meta decks because the meta decks, people, you know, they're already thinking four or five cards maybe to beat those. And if you if you have a deck that's relying on Cascade and casting a free spell and it relies on the graveyard, um, <laughs> people have, I mean, what did you say, six or seven cards in their sideboard typically to beat that kind of stuff? I mean, that's that's a lot to overcome. Yeah, exactly. Just because you're a bad graveyard deck doesn't mean you don't lose to the good graveyard. <laughs> right, like your opponent still gets to bring in rest in peace, even though it's so powerful against your, you know, not as, you know, not tier one deck. Yeah. So something to be aware of. But while we have you, David, I want to talk Pioneer for a minute. Obviously, Resurgent Belief is Modern Horizons, so it's not legal in Pioneer. 
that's a bit of a disappointment. We got a lot of pioneer brewers in our faithless family. The question is, is there anything that we can learn from the whole project of resurgent belief, reanimating enchantments? Is there any equivalent concept in pioneer? So you mentioned to me, it's like, oh, you should think about equivalent concepts. And then you mentioned Spirit Sisters Call. And I was like, damn, man, we really got smoked Spirit Sisters <laughs> Call week, if anybody remembers. Like, I'm just off that card. I'm not playing that card. I hate having to sacrifice stuff. I would finally trade all these resources. and I resolve a Spirit Sisters Call and there'd be nothing else in play. And you get one use out of it. You'd have to sack it itself because you don't have anything else. So I was like, all right, I'm off that. But the thing that did make me intrigued is... Much like Mord, I really like the idea of these channel effects, and specifically the channel effect of Greater Tanuki. Um, you had kind of mentioned it to me in the past as part of a reanimator shell. I thought that was, it's a, so just a reminder to people, Greater Tanuki is four green green for a 6-5 trample, which weirdly is like really good. <laughs> it... Cards that dodge Fatal Push, so we've talked about this before, a 5-mana card that dodges Fatal Push and has 5 toughness, so all the 4-mana damage effects in the format, so I'm talking about Chandra Minus, I'm talking about the various red effects, can't kill it. It's actually really hard to kill. Like, in its main deck, red-black will maybe play, like, 2 Dread Boars. Like, there's 2 cards in the whole deck that kill it. Red-black Sacrifice cannot kill this card, and it blocks everything, right? Dominates... <laughs> tramples over, uh, you know, whatever, cat oven. Um, so, okay, like, this body's not embarrassing, is my point. I'm not playing a bunch of craw worms with some <laughs> two extra toughness and a keyword. But the channel ability, so it naturally puts itself in the graveyard and naturally gets you to your fifth land. That's really interesting to me. Sky Turtle as both early interaction, and then if you are, quote-unquote, flooded... It combines with Shigeki to create like an ultimate value loop, right? So if you have like six lands, you're just Colossal Sky Turtle back Shigeki. Shigeki gets back Sky Turtle and one other card. You can just do this forever. Um, so you you create this thing where you have a mana source that's Greater Tanuki that eventually it naturally puts itself in the graveyard. And then you have the Shigeki Colossal Sky Turtle package that if you get too much lands, you, know, you flood out, you don't get to draw your you know reanimator spell. It at least keeps generating value for you. So I'm really interested in that as a shell. And turn three, Greater Kanuki. Tanuki naturally just lets you play Starfield of Nyx. It also smooths out all your mana. And then Starfield of Nyx, yes, cannot be used at the end of turn, like Spirit Sisters Call, but it doesn't involve sacrificing anything. So you'll just naturally, in your next upkeep, just get a free Greater Tanuki into play. And then you have five or six mana to cast spells or cycle spells to get back in your next upkeep. So I'm really, I'm really encouraged by this shell, which is just straight up four Shigeki, four Witch Wolf Willow Haven, four Colossal Sky Turtle, four Greater Tanuki, four Cast Out, four Starfield of Nyx, four Shark Typhoon. So even though our deck is full of all these quote-unquote expensive cards, they can all be just turned into another card. They can all just start cycling through your deck for very cheap, right? I see the concept there. My question is, at what point do you actually start to stabilize and then win the game? Resurgent Belief does it all at once, right? Resolve it, everything happens. Starfield, pretty slow, right? Cast it, wait a turn, get one thing back. So this is essentially going to be like a, a very long game control deck. Are you use, essentially using Starfield for value for a series of turns until the opponent succumbs? Yeah, that's exactly right. So my perspective is that right now, if you want to be a mid-range deck, you just have to be able to execute three two-for-ones, and then red-black cannot beat you. 
So if you if you can execute three two for ones, you will beat Red Black. Their clock is super slow. So can you do that? And then after you do that, can you develop a reasonable game against the other poles of the format? So after board, do you have a chance against the combo decks and Phoenix? Can you beat the slow artifact or the the aggressive creature decks? So we're main decking multiple Wrath of Gods, and then we're going up to the full or Supreme Verdict in uh, Pioneer. Sorry. So we have a chance against aggro, and then in then we're we're main decking for Shark Typhoon. That's good against control decks. And then against board, I think there's actually enough good cards to play, including I'm I'm in love with this tech Lunar Force with Starfield of Nyx. <laughs> Soft lock. <laughs> Drink it in. So yeah, th this is a deck that I think can dominate red-black. So I think it's it's a better mid-range deck than red-black. Can you do enough on the edges to give a game against the, the two poles? That's the question that we're trying to answer. I've got this deck heavily edged with main deck three sweepers to try to beat aggro. Uh, and then we're hoping to be able to adjust and beat the, the more controlling decks in the post-board games. Would you consider... I know this is irresponsible, but splashing fires of invention. Just looking at the cards in here, Shigeki, Sky Turtle, Shark Typhoon. I mean, they really appreciate having your mana free. Yeah, anytime you're playing channel effects, and we have 12 of them, plus we're playing cycling effects, Shark Typhoon being one of them. Uh, that is interesting for fires. The thing with fires, though, is you need a lot of card advantage, and we don't have that effect here, other than specifically just Shigeki um, being active. Or, or channeled. So that makes me nervous. So you're satisfied just paying full price for Shigeki using your turn to get something back. Yeah, I mean, Shigeki is another card. You'd play it on two. If they don't kill it and it is resistant to stomp, you activate it on turn three. It puts cards in your graveyard and then it leads naturally to a turn five Starfield if you have it, right? So it, it functions as turn three, it adds another land to play your fourth land. And then on turn or you play Starfield with probably Shigeki milled something because we're playing all these enchantments. Yeah. The other thing that happens is they like kill your Shigeki. So then Starfield has a natural card to bring back, which is Shigeki. And then Shigeki comes back to your hand naturally to uh, after it's activated. So you, you, you have a late game inevitability <laughs> where it sets up your yes. loop. <laughs> okay, that's sweet. All right, so this, this deck can play forever. I love that. Right. So so basically what we're trying to do is just slow the game down. Like if you just get a greater Tanuki for free on your fifth turn and you have six mana in play, greater Tanuki is pretty good at stabilizing against decks that aren't spirits, right? Like it blocks everything. It's bigger than red black. It's hard for them to kill. And if it dies, it's just going to come back if Starfield of Nyx is in play. And then you just have six mana to not die that turn. And if you just survive like one more turn, you won't lose to any other deck other than against spirits, which we'll, <laughs> we're never going to beat. <laughs> No, certainly not. But that's fine. All right, so that's Starfield of Nyx, Pioneer Legal. Do you have any hope for the card Brilliant Restoration? This is three white, 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 seven mana total. Return all artifacts and enchantments from your graveyard to the battlefield. It's open the vaults for one. Open my vaults, but not yours. I don't have a lot of faith in it there's no way to cheat it in the format right so you you're just paying the full seven seven mana is a ton of mana right the only deck that's playing seven mana spells is the lotus field deck and it's playing a seven mana sorcery that wins the game in theory this is a seven mana sorcery that wins the game 
We need more enchantments that would naturally ramp us. So you have to play Greater Tanuki, I think, to ever hope to get to seven. So that's, you know, I'm obviously excited about Greater Tanuki. Uh, there has to be other enchantments that do this, and there, there are very few. There's a three mana enchantment. Um, the Omen, the Green Omen, is a three mana enchantment that ramps and then can sack Oof. itself to scry too. I mean, th that's a pretty bad card. Wolf Haven is fine. Um, but I mean, how, how are you getting to seven, right? And so you're doing the exact same thing as Starfield of Nyx. Your payoff is better that turn if they haven't done a... The thing is like, Starfield of Nyx is actually better against the commonly played Graveyard Hate main deck because the commonly played Graveyard Hate main deck is basically just Graveyard Trespasser. So you just let them attack with a graveyard trespasser, they exile whatever enchantment. Then you on your end of turn cycle your cast out or whatever, and then you just get it back for free. You just you can time it around that. Huh. But um them playing a uh, graveyard trespasser on turn three and attacking with it three times basically means by the time you resolve your brilliant restoration, it doesn't do anything, right? So weirdly, it's more susceptible to graveyard hate, and I think it doesn't actually lead to natural outcomes because you need cards that ramp you and go to the graveyard at the same time, right? You're, you're asking for two different classes of cards and that's a lot. That's a fair warning. I think I am looking at a list by lurking evil from our discord. Mardu colors, 60 cards topping out on two copies of brilliant restoration. The way that lurking evil solved the dilemma you just posed is they said, okay, well, I'm basically not going to ramp, right? I'm just going to play super controlling and at some point in the game, I'll get to seven mana sources, which plays into the strength of the Mardu colors. And when I look at the enchantments you get to play in Mardu, I see a lot of cards that, you know, I'm nodding my head. Like, yeah, these are actually pretty decent, right? Not just cast out like in your band deck, but Oath of Kaya is decent. Trial of Ambition is pretty good. Fable of the Mirror Breaker is a big one, four copies of that couple baffling ends, Omen of the Forge is a little shock effect, Birth of Melitus. So, you know, it's just adding material to the board. I think between Fable of the Mirror Breaker and Birth of Melitus, you know, you're setting yourself up for a longer game where you're at least making land drops, if not ramping. A couple Meat Hook Massacres, a couple Starfield of Nyx, and uh, they even got a couple Doomwake Giants here. I mean, do you see anything you like in this slate of enchantments in Mardu that you know would tempt you away from the Bant core? I love Fable the Mirror Breaker. I was considering playing a four-color deck, literally just playing Fable as my red card and just hoping like Tanuki would get me there. Um, I might still do that. I, I think Fable the Mirror Breaker is probably on rate better than any other enchantment in the list that I propose, and it's certainly the best card uh, in, in the deck that uh, Lurking Evil has here too. Because it's naturally uh, a ramp effect if they don't kill your 2-2, and you're probably just going to literally like suicide it like as soon as possible just to get a treasure, right? Um, but then it also naturally loots, so it finds your Starfield of Nyx in theory on that turn. So again, it, it can take you to, to 5 mana on turn 4 while being a search effect for Starfield, right? Other than like just the looting effects that we were talking about in the other, the other my build. So I love the idea of 4 Fable... And I like the idea of staying alive. So this deck is basically just like mono removal. So it's mm -hmm. it sort of echoes some of the other Mardu lists. I don't love some of the top end effects. Like I don't think you want Doom Wake Giant, but I like the idea of just like playing a ton of removal, 
fable to like loot through the extra removal you don't need to find your star field or, or maybe even, you know, maybe play one brilliant restoration. Uh, and then Urian is just like a very powerful card in decks like this because you have all these cards that have come into play effects. So I like that shell. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I see a couple of Warlock class here. That's actually a nice one. Um, one mana enchantment. When you level it up for two, you get to do a strategic planning. Build your graveyard, find your next guess, set yourself up for good value from the graveyard, but the rest of the deck is not graveyard reliant at all, right? It's just a attrition removal deck. You could just win with a Sky Noodle eventually. I would probably put Yorian in the companion zone just because um, <laughs> Mord has influenced me, corrupted my brain. <laughs> but I mean, when you're playing this many trials and oaths, I, I think you just have to. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many powerful coming to play effects, right? Like, you also want a, a way to not flood because you don't, you know, okay, the deck I'm playing is not playing Fable, which is which is a downside. But there's not that many cycling effects here, so you can definitely get stuck, right? You just draw a bunch of births and omens and whatever, and it's like, Urine will be a very crucial part of that. Doom Foretold is kind of interesting. Um, Lurking Evil has that in their sideboard, not their main deck, but it's an enchantment. It leads to things getting eaten. Pretty decent card. Something to think about. Yeah, absolutely. All right, those are some pioneer concepts. Do they stay true to the mission of resurgent belief? We'll leave that to you to decide. <laughs> but our project continues apace. We're just getting started. Going to keep testing some of these. I'll probably be working on modern this week. But, you know, if, if time permits, I might try out uh, this Bant Pioneer list. And we'll keep you updated on what we learn. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, I think that's going to do it for us for today. David, bid you farewell. I bid you adieu. Decklist for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in on Monday for new decks with Vivian's Arcbow and Getaway Car, plus testing results with our latest Faithless Brews. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. 